Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Glad you're with us. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, we're just really glad you came. Honored that you would spend part of your Christmas with us here at Mountain. I'm glad you did. You know, one thing we love to do is just say hello to everyone. We're one church that meets in all these different locations. So if we can just kind of give a shout out now and just say welcome everyone who's at the Abingdon campus, the Bel Air campus, Edgewood campus, Mountain Road campus, online. Just really glad we can all do this together. That's a blast. Um, so show of hands, how many of you would say, I am done with the gifts I'm going to make or the shopping I need to do for Christmas? Let me see your hand. Wow. That's really weird. <laughs> uh, there's that many of you, actually. How many of you have done any uh, shopping on Amazon this year? Yeah? How many have already had to return something? And just ship it back to Amazon. Hey, I've got to warn you, be careful. If you order on Amazon through that voice app, Alexa thing, you know, you just kind of talk to it. I had a little mishap this week, had to make a return. Go ahead and show the slide there. It says, uh, <laughs> I was just trying to get some little cheeses. Anyway, so be careful about that. Apparently, that's not the only little baby that everyone is making the center of attention this Christmas. Do you know, according to uh, Amazon, what the number one requested gift is this year? Baby Yoda. Yes, everybody's all about it, you know. Oh, come let us adore him, apparently. So, yeah, everyone wants one of those under their trees. We've been talking about trees, particularly the Christmas tree, right? The Christmas tree is the focal point for a lot of us for Christmas, and it's the symbol, in a way, of all that Christmas has become, all the hubbub and the hurried and the, and the consumerism and all the stuff we buy to put under our trees. And what we're trying to do in this series is to say, wait a second, don't miss the forest for the tree. In other words, don't get so caught up in the traditions and the tree and the pies and the puddings and the presents that you miss the point of what Christmas really is because you, you need to step back sometimes, don't we, and see the bigger picture, the meaning, the, the forest of what God is really doing that makes this whole thing worth celebrating in the first place. And we're going to be able to, to do that, I think, together even today a little bit. And to do it, we're going to look at another tree. We'll be looking at a tree each week, and I'm going to suggest to you today that the tree we're going to look at today could be considered the original Christmas tree, like the original Christmas tree. Now, before we had evergreens with, you know, lights on them and people sticking Baby Yoda under them, before we had all that, somebody went and cut down a tree and then shaped some of its wood into rough planks and beams and made a manger out of it, a little bit like this one maybe. And I just wonder if we could think about that tree as maybe the original Christmas tree. And whoever that was who, who made that first manger of wood, I bet they had, they had no idea. <laughs> I mean, how could they, right? They thought they were making a feed trough, and yet the manger would become not only a place where a cow, maybe some sheep, would nuzzle their gruel and leave some drool, but a place where the Son of God would be laid on a bed of straw. I mean, how could they know? You can't always see what God is up to, can you? But I promise you this, God is always up to something. And I just wonder if you're ready for that. I don't know where you find yourself this Christmas, but I hope that you know that God is always up to something, and he's at work in ways we can't always see, and he's working a plan. I wonder if you're open to whatever God might want to do in your life. 
and in the world through you. And that's what we want to talk about this Christmas. What happened in that manger, that first Christmas tree, makes all the difference. One of my favorite uh, songs for, for Christmas is Oh Holy Night. How many of you like that? You like that one? I just love the music. I love the words to it especially. You remember that one phrase when it says, a thrill of hope. What's the next phrase? The weary world rejoices. The weary. I love it because I think so many of us are weary. So many people are weary. I mean, it's just anxiety is like skyrocketing. Depression is off the charts. Panic attacks like way more than they used to be. Suicide is epidemic. By the way, we're going to talk early in 2020. We're going to have a series of messages about mental health and how to navigate that difficult stuff with Jesus. But it's not just our mental health. We're weary. Is anyone else weary of just impeachment trial and hearings and political posturing and arguing and Facebook stuff and the news and the homicides and the world hunger and the the stress at work and the people that bug you and all this stuff we just get weary of. Don't you ever get weary of just everything? Which is why I think I love the song because it suggests that in the midst of our weariness, God sends Jesus to a manger, yes, but into the world, into your life and mine so that maybe even in the midst of weariness, we can find a thrill of hope, a little joy, a little peace. I saw an illustration of that this last week. Maybe you saw the same thing. It was on BAL. Penn Pennington um, is a musician. He's played all over the South in churches all over the place. He's played at the Grand Ole Opry like 23 years in a row. But right now, he's got cancer. And so he's getting these nasty chemo treatments he has to go in for, get hooked up to those machines and those bags of stuff. And it's been a long, hard road. You can t- imagine, talk about weary. But his nurse, Alex, is also a believer. <clears throat> so she got this idea She brings her guitar to work, and even though he's tired and nauseous and not really feeling that great, she convinces him to sing a duet with her right there in that hospital. Um, So right there, hooked up to machines and bags of chemo, they sing a song. You want to guess what song they sing? Oh, holy night. I got a little bit of it. Go ahead and watch and enjoy this.
I think, I think some of the reason that kind of touches every one of us in a deep place is I think that all of us, don't we, don't we want to know whether we've got cancer or not, that in, even in the midst of our weariness, we can find hope and that there's more to the story. There's more going on than what you can see originally. That even in the midst of our worst sorrows and struggling, we can have a kind of joy and a peace. And I'm telling you, all that begins right here. And so for that, we got to go to the story, which is found in the Bible. And Luke chapter 2 is one of the best places that tells the story of the birth of Jesus as he came to that original Christmas tree manger. Luke is the one who tells the story. Chapter 2, he says that the emperor, Caesar, called for a census, so everybody had to go to their hometown, and David, uh, excuse me, Joseph, who's from the town of the, the family of David, has to go to the city of David, Bethlehem, so he and Mary engaged to be married, she pregnant, make their way. The cards all say that they were, she was riding a donkey, probably not, only rich folk had donkeys, they were not rich. They probably walked those 90 miles, three days journey at least, and they show up there finally, and Luke chapter 2 Verse 6 says this, and while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn. It was a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. The custom then, and still today in that part of the world, is that the poor women, at least, the peasants, the commoners, would wrap their babies in anything they could find, rags, strips of cloth, a blanket, whatever you could, swaddling clothes to bundle up, make it feel safe and warm, bundle it up. And then laying it in a manger is a little odd because a, a manger is a feed trough. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a place you feed animals, and um, that was not very customary, of course. A lot of times we're used to thinking of the manger being out in our, in our nativity sets and our Christmas cards all picture it out like in a countrified scene with a stable and a barn or something. But I'm telling you, again, only rich people had separate barns to keep your animals in. Everybody, pretty much, all the poor people and the peasants for sure, what they did have was a house, a very simple house with kind of one big room divided into two parts. In the main family room, the larger part, they all lived and slept and ate and spent their time. And then separated by a few of these, they would have a step-down area where they would bring their animals in at night. You wanted your animals in at night because, one, it would help keep you warm. Two, that way nobody could steal them. And then you had the mangers right there kind of separating the living area from where the animals were. If Bessie got hungry in the middle of the night, she could just munch. And so... This is probably the area where Mary and Joseph were. The, the Bible says there was no room for them in the inn. Well, that word just means guest, you know, the, the guest room. It's the extra room. Like when Jesus says, I want to go to the upper room and have the last supper, when he refers to that, it's the same word. It just means extra room in the house. So Joseph and Mary aren't running around knocking on the door, Hampton Inn, trying to find a place. They're going to their relatives who all would have eagerly welcomed them. And one of them did, apparently, but had a small peasant house with not enough room. And so there was no room for them in the house or the inn, and so there they were, and she laid him in a manger, and there under the Judean night sky, some blood, some cries from Mary, a few bleats of sheep, and there you've got this baby born, the Son of God. It seems like it was a bigger deal than that. It seems so ordinary. So God wants us to see the significant, so he sends a messenger or an angel to let some folk know, and this is what, when things get interesting, we start to realize that what's happening here, God's up to something. So verse 8, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, 
guarding their flocks of sheep. You may know that shepherds in that society were very, very low on the social scale. They were not respected. They were thought to be thieves. They were spiritually and ritually unclean because they just, they were, they were, they couldn't go into the temple. They were just outsiders and outcasts, loners. They were the rednecks, the hillbillies, the uneducated folk out in the mountains all by themselves. Eusebius is a historian at that time. He tells us there was a watch post right near Bethlehem, and this is probably where they were watching their sheep. Now, the sheep that they were raising were probably special. Did you know that? You know why? Because it's very likely that the sheep the shepherds were raising were set aside for the Jewish sacrifices down in the temple. See, the people everywhere kept on sinning. And so as those sins piled up, they would need these sacrificial lambs to be placed into the hands of the priests who would go, and then the blood of the lamb was slain and would atone for their sins. So they could be cleansed and made right before God and worship Him freely. But to qualify for those temple sacrifices, the sheep had to be perfect, without blemish, spotless. If your sheep fell in a hole, broke its leg, or got bit by a wolf, no longer could it be used in the temple as a sacrifice. Now you'd get like half price for it. You'd only be able to use it for the wool or the, or the, the leather or the meat. So no wonder they're keeping watch over their sheep at night, there's a profit margin at stake here, right? And do you see the great irony of what's going on here? Here are, these, here are these shepherds who are literally raising sheep that will go into the temple to clear, to clear everyone of their sin, and yet they themselves are considered ritually and religiously unclean. They can't go to the temple themselves. If they showed up there, the priest would say, get out of here. They handled poop and dung and dead things with their hands, and they were like unclean. And so they'd given up on all of that, and they stayed away. I think that's ironic that they're raising these animals but are too dirty for God themselves. There was a guy who used to make some deliveries to the church. All the time he'd be in and out. I got to know him, talk to him, hear his story. One time he said to me something like this. He says, you know, I, I don't do the church. If I, I would never come back here for services because me and God, we don't get along. He said, in fact, I think if it ever came through, I think the roof would cave in and everyone would get struck by lightning. Maybe, maybe you know someone like that. Maybe, that. maybe that's you even. That's kind of how the shepherds were. You know, it's like uh, that forgiveness stuff is for someone else. The church stuff, I've given up on that. I'll just do my, I'm kind of a spiritual loner. So maybe that's you. You're here on a Christmas service because you had to be, but maybe you understand. Well, God... God visits these shepherds. When he has a message, he sends a messenger, and that's what an angel is. Verse 9, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They're freaked out. The, the brightness of, of God all through the Old Testament, it's just like, oh, no one can handle it. And these guys, they've never seen a flashlight, let alone the radiance of God. So it says, no wonder in verse 10, they were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you what? Good news, which will bring what? Great joy. For whom? All people. Why? Because the Savior, the Rescuer, yes, the Messiah, the one you've been waiting on, the Lord, the King of the universe, is here, and he's been what? Born? Odd. When? When? Today. Where? In Bethlehem, right next door, the city of David. And then he says to the shepherds, and you're going to recognize him. By this sign, you'll find him wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. 
And after that, a bunch more angel armies show up and see glory to God in the highest and have a great big party in heaven and all that. But you know, the very next thing that the shepherds say, they say, let's go check it out. Let's go see if this thing is true. Now think about that. Why in the world would these shepherds think they could do that? They're shepherds. If it's really the Messiah, those parents aren't going to let them anywhere near the Son of God. Why is it that they suddenly feel like it's okay for them and that they'll receive a welcome if they go see God that day? Well, I think God anticipated that, and that's why he gave a sort of message to the angel to say to the shepherds, here's a sign. And what was the sign? Think about it. First of all, you're going to find God, but number one, it'll be a baby. What could be less threatening than a baby? They just sit there. And you're going to find it wrapped in strips of cloth, which is exactly the way the peasants wrap their own babies. It was like normal. The rich people, they did the fancy little clothes and stuff, but not the poor people. They're like strips of cloth. It's just like, just like my wife would wrap, just like me. And lying in a manger, they know mangers. <laughs> we do sheep. We do feed troughs which also told him it wasn't in a fancy house or a merchant's rich guest chambers. It wasn't at a hospital. It wasn't down at the temple. You will find the Son of God in the temple. No, because they would not have been welcome in any of those places. But if God shows up as a baby wrapped in rags in a feed trough, well, maybe I can do that. And see, this is what we got to get through our thick skulls because Christians and the church for centuries has made it too hard to get to God. And God, when he comes, makes it really, really easy. And he gives a sign and says, this is for you. And so they go and they check it out. And they go and they check it out. I don't know how God could have made it any more obvious when the Son of God shows up on that first Christmas tree cradle. He's flanked on either side by hillbilly hicks. God didn't show up and go to Congress, thankfully. Didn't go to the Grammy Awards and talk to all the pretty people and make an announcement. Nope, went to these shepherds. And don't forget also that a short time after that, some rich guys from out east showed up in their Lexi and had gifts. Every gift begins with K or whatever. They had all that fancy stuff. And they were welcome there too. And everyone from the lowest to the highest finds its way in the opening scenes of the story of Jesus as if God could not make it any clearer to say, God is here and this is for everyone. Good news of great joy for whom? All people. Turn to the person next to you and say, it's like Budweiser, this God is for you. <laughs> Whatever. You know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. Friends, it's for everyone. This is for frat boys and girls gone wild. This is for special needs kids and victims of rape. This is for people who have grown up going to Sunday school every Sunday of your life and people who have never darkened the doors of a church. This is for everyone. This is for hell's angels and gang members and school teachers and kids with two moms and those who are counting their days clean and sober. It's for, it's for refugees and immigrants and those who want to build a wall. This, this is for firefighters and farmers and truck drivers and stockbrokers and meth dealers and rednecks and seminary graduates and single moms and politicians and factory workers and tattoo parlor owners and foster kids. It, it's for those whose families are falling apart and those who are making it look like they got everything together. It's for those single people who desperately wish they could be married. And it's for married people who wish they were single it's for everyone. 
This is for everyone. It's for young and old and black and white and Asian, Latino and Indian and everybody in between. If you're collecting money from, from unemployment or collecting money from a trust fund, if you go to work in a business suit or go to work in yoga pants or don't go to work at all, this is for you. I don't care if you're an atheist or an agnostic. I don't care if you're a Baptist or a Buddhist. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu or, or, or a Lutheran or a Baptist. It does not matter. This is good news of great joy for all people. This is for you. It's for you and for me. Now, the deal about that, we all know it started here, but it didn't end here. We got to get past the manger, don't we, to really understand Jesus. If you want to understand Jesus, you got to go farther than just where he showed up. Now, pretty soon around your house, you're going to be taking your own nativity sets and putting them away, aren't you? I mean, pretty soon you'll, you'll take them apart and put them back in and wrap up some paper around the different pieces, and you'll, you'll just start taking it apart. And you know what? We've got we've to take apart, we've got to take apart the, um, the nativity if we're going to really get at Jesus and understand who he is. And at first, you know, when you start taking things apart in life, and then all you have is a bunch of pieces, you don't always know you don't always know what the pieces are going to be for anymore. Has that ever happened to you? you? You you have all kinds of pieces of your life and you're just not sure what's going to happen with it. You know, one thing we sometimes forget is that Jesus grew up in the house of a carpenter. He was a carpenter himself. Pretty good with wood. Hung around dad. And one thing you learn as a carpenter is you don't just start going at it, nailing and sawing. You have a plan. And you know from the beginning where you're headed. Even though someone else looking at it might just see nothing but just a bunch of wood. And he learned that from his dad. And you know what? His heavenly father had a plan as well. And Jesus came and the plan looked like it was going great. You know, everybody loved Jesus. He gave away free food. He told great stories. Loved people. And then, then he died, and then everything fell apart. The whole thing just seemed like it crumbled, and all you had was a bunch of broken pieces, like you probably had in your life at a different time. You ever had those, just kind of random pieces, and you don't know what to do? You look at it, and it's like, oh my gosh, what can I do with this now? Some of you right now, you're looking at a life with some broken pieces. Well... God had a plan with all those pieces. I like thinking about Jesus growing up here. The Bible doesn't say much, but there's a painting I want to show you because it reminds us how God had a plan from the very beginning, just like his father Joseph taught him to work with plans. Take a look at this painting. It's by John Millay. It's from 1850 or so. When it first came out, everybody hated it. Take a look at it. Study it closely. They hated it because it was so ordinary. It made, it's Jesus working in the workshop with his family. And they criticized it. Charles Dickens hated it because it was so ordinary. You know, Jesus is just there. There's no fancy robe or halo or holy poses. Just a messy workshop with chips on the floor. Jesus got bare feet and red hair. But you look more closely and what you see is that they're working on a door. A symbol of how Jesus would open the door for everyone to come to God. It's a messy workshop and that's the mess of our world. The mess of your life. Jesus comes right into it. 
We're the sheep out the window. We're, we've gone astray. We need someone to lead us. You do. I do. Young Jesus is eager to be about his father's business, but he's hurt himself and he's cut his hand on a nail and it's pierced through the skin. Now the blood has dripped down onto his foot and it's a haunting foreshadowing of the days to come when nails would in fact again pierce him. His cousin John the Baptist is there bringing water to wash the wound or a symbol of the baptism that John would perform over Jesus not long after this. His mother's there trying to comfort him as any mother would, trying to kiss it all away and there's Father Joseph looking on, not really able to do much. And as you, as you've looked at that picture, it's all a reminder that from Jesus' earliest days, from the cradle to the workshop, God had a plan, a plan from the beginning of time. From the very beginning, Jesus lives under the shadow of the cross. That was the plan. That was all part of the plan. Jesus was born to die and to become that perfect Lamb of God who would be sacrificed by laying his own life down to take away the sins of the world. And if he is that one and that's part of the plan, then there's your thrill of hope because it means there's life and love past death. It means that there's going to be an end to evil and suffering and death and justice will come one day and there's hope for the world because God has a plan. Isn't that beautiful? God's plan from the very beginning didn't make a lot of sense to people. You know, when you look, when you look at the plan, it, just, it doesn't always make sense. By the way, uh, I, used to, I used to date a girl that uh, was really into carpentry. Wow, she was just all the time. She was just working, working, working on her projects, this and that, and all the projects. I finally made an ultimatum to her. I said, you know, it's your carpentry equipment or me? No, 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 no. It's all in the delivery. Let me try that again. I said, it's me or your carpentry equipment. And she chose the latter. <laughs> it's all, see, you got to deliver that right. It doesn't come out right. Think about it. Some of you slow ones will get it. I, I, apparently, she went on to take the exam for carpentry. Yeah. I think she nailed it. Some of you just saw what I did there. I know another guy, I know another guy who, um, he actually uh, was sawing just like that and actually cut off his left hand, like the whole thing's gone. He's all right now. Some of you just don't get it, do you? But you know... If the plan all along was for Jesus to go to a cross, no wonder people thought it was foolish and didn't like it. But that's just the way God always is. Make no mistake. One day, God, one day God will come back. Jesus will return, and he will defeat all of his enemies, including sin and death and evil. He will come back, and he'll reign in power. But the first time he came, he came in weakness. He came in weakness, didn't he? And that's why it doesn't make any sense to a lot of people. I mean, what kind of a God comes in weakness? But you know, this is the way, this is the way God's always done it. I mean, when he showed up, when he showed up the first time, he showed up as a baby. Weakness. When he 
chose a people to work through in the Old Testament. He didn't choose Babylon. He didn't choose uh, Assyria. He chose a little kind of know-nothing podunk nation called the Jews, Israel. What's up with that? When he wanted to kill a great big giant, what did he do? He chose a little shepherd boy to do it. When he wanted to choose a woman to work through, you know, in that culture, it was the beautiful women, the, the, the women with all the babies that were considered blessed, and God just had this funny way of choosing, like, the barren old Sarah and ugly Leah. It's crazy. It's always been God's way. So that's why it seems foolish. This is why Matthew 1, 21, when, when Jesus showed up and the angel came to her, his dad, Joseph, Matthew 1, 21, it says, he will save his people from their sins. Before he's even born, that's the plan. Or when Jesus was talking about his own death in John 18, he says, for this cause I was born. He was born to die. It's why he came. And in, and in 1 Timothy 1, 15, Jesus says, I came into the world, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst, Paul says. It's crazy to think about, isn't it? And so they took him to trial. It wasn't much of a trial. It was a mockery. He was an innocent man. They trumped up charges and accused him, this and that. He didn't defend himself. He just let it happen, apparently because he was laying down his life. And then they beat him, and he suffered under it. And then the next thing you know, this one who, I wonder how many times he had heard his dad say, hey, Jesus, grab the other end of this six by six. I need, I need the help with that, you know? And the two of them would carry that big old hunk of wood, you know? And that day... Someone had cut down a tree and fashioned a cross out of it, and they made Jesus carry it all by himself. He staggered under its weight until he finally fell over, and they had to get someone to help him. The workshop, they did a lot of stuff together, you know. They were all partners in business, but that day Jesus was all by himself. Even his friends left him. cruel form of punishment, the cross, tough way to die, asphyxiation, stuff bursts inside of you like your arteries, you can't breathe, people mocking you, dying of dehydration out in the afternoon sun, they put those nails through his hands One on each side. And then they did one through his feet to hold him in place. And his mama couldn't kiss it away, and his father was nowhere to be found, and neither were his friends. Makes me think that maybe, you know, the original Christmas tree like the real Christmas tree. It's maybe not the one that used to make the manger. 
the one they used to make the cross. And that that was God's plan all along. Because God's always up to something. And you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Bible says he was crucified between two thieves, criminals on his right and left. Strike you that on the first day, God shows up on the planet his first day. He's flanked by two unlikely shepherds, sinners, unclean people. And then on the last day, same thing. One of the criminals is mocking Jesus and says, hey, you could save everyone else, why don't you save yourself? He thought the way to save yourself was to come down off the cross, don't go the way of suffering. And Jesus knew better, and so he stayed there. Why? Why did Jesus go to the cross? The sins of Ben Kacharis put him on the cross, that's why. Your sins put him on the cross. Because it was the best and only way God could say to you, I love you. And I can forgive you. And I want you back. And that's the message of the cross. You know, it doesn't stop at the cross. You know, Jesus isn't on the cross any more than he's in the cradle. The whole plan from the beginning moved from, like, the cradle to the cross to the crown. Because now Jesus reigns on high. The book of Philippians says that not only did he humble himself to a cradle and a cross, but now he's been exalted. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wears a crown today and he will return again as an undisputed King of kings and Lord of lords. That was God's plan all along as well. And now what he asks is that just as he humbled himself to a cradle and a cross, that you would humble yourself before his crown and let him be the leader and the Lord and the king of your life. You know, those two criminals, one of them mocked Jesus, but the other said, Jesus, would you remember me today? Would you remember me when you go into your kingdom? And Jesus says, I will. And he did. And he said, you'll be with me in paradise today. And then you know what Jesus said? I forgive you. And if you'll say those same things to Jesus, if you'll humble yourself and say, Jesus, will you remember me? He will. So you're invited this Christmas to humble yourself before the Lord. Remember that song, O Holy Night, when it says, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Remember the next words? Fall on your knees. Maybe the best thing you could do is not come to the manger and kneel like some nativity set, frozen in time, but to fall on your knees before the cross, before the risen Lord. The one who wore a crown from the moment he was born. We're going to share in communion right now, and it's an opportunity for everyone as you take emblems of, of juice and bread that represent the death of Jesus, the blood and the body broken. It's an invitation for you to get real with God. Jesus got real. This is real. 
He didn't just come and religious, give some religious platitudes. He, he laid down his life and he humbled himself so that he could save your neck. And now he's just asking you, will you return the favor and love and trust him enough to follow his way? So let's get real with God. And everyone who's ready to do that is invited to participate. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the miracle of Christmas and for the love of Jesus. And we pray now for his spirit and his presence to pervade this place and every heart in this room. And listening to my voice. God, we thank you for Jesus and we praise you for him. And we pray that we will make room for him in our hearts as we humble ourselves and fall to our knees before him. In the name of Christ, all God's people said. Amen.